Welcome to Jim's Take. I'm your host, Jim Vaughn. And I'm your co-host, Tyler Kennedy. We have a topic that everyone has some experience with today, taxes. Benjamin Franklin once said, nothing is certain but death and taxes. We will discuss how taxes work on investments or differ from ordinary income tax. Before we jump into this, it's important to note that the rules discussed in this podcast are for taxable accounts only, such as a brokerage account. First question I have for you, Jim, what is capital gains tax? Uh, You earn some money at your job, your income, uh, you don't spend it all, and so you save it. Maybe it ends up in your bank, but maybe you invest that money. You buy stocks, uh, you might buy a piece of real estate. Time goes by, you own that stock, and you sell that stock. If the stock has gone up in value, you have a capital gain and you pay capital gain taxes on the difference between what you paid for the stock and what you sold it for. So just a couple of quick things. First of all, you pay the tax and we'll talk about what that rate is and lots of rules apply. But the important, an important point is that you don't pay the tax until you sell this particular asset that you have. We'll just touch on the difference in terms of short-term and long-term capital gain tax. There are many rules that apply to the taxation of investments. The first set of rules that everyone should be familiar with is the difference between a short-term capital gain and a long-term capital gain. The tax rate is different on each type of gain. So a short-term gain is a gain from an investment that the investor held for one year or less. So one year is the magic date. If you hold it for less than that period of time, then you pay taxes on it as if it is ordinary income tax, which is a higher rate than capital gain tax. Capital gain tax rates apply to long-term capital gains. And those rates are lower than short-term capital gain rates. Yeah, they receive uh, preferred tax rates, so to say. No one one prefers taxes. And going on with capital gains, as we know, investments do not always go up. What happens when an investment declines in value and then you sell? How does the tax situation or the tax rate change? Tyler, what you just described is what we call a long-term capital loss. might be a short-term capital loss, but it is a capital loss. Uh, You made an investment. You expected it to go up. Everyone does. Sometimes it doesn't. A short-term capital loss, if you decide to sell it out, is a loss where you held the position for less than a year. If you hold it for more than a year, it is a long-term capital loss. Short-term and long-term capital losses can be used to offset dollar-for-dollar short-term and long-term capital gains. So you can get what essentially amounts to a deduction, a reduction in your capital gain taxes for any losses. And that's only when you sell. It's only when you sell. And that's that's a point that's worth emphasizing. Not only do capital gain get taxed at lower rates, and I'll touch on those rates in a second. But the key is that there's no tax at all until you sell. 
So it, it's very much a voluntary tax. Uh, the investor decides it's time to sell. The investor knows the taxes will come in at that time. They sell anyway for whatever reason that they may have. Now that we have covered both short-term, long-term capital gains and capital losses, how do long-term capital gain rates receive preferable tax rates? Long-term capital gain rates have a schedule, and it is a graduated schedule, much like the ordinary income tax rates are. That is, the higher your income, the higher your capital gain tax rate. So for our typical married client, capital gain rate can be as low as zero on the first $80,000, and then it it marches up pretty quickly. A 15% applies to many clients who earn joint income between eighty dollars and 500000 over roughly 500,000 the rate moves to 20% with an extra 3.8% tax that applies uh for most of those higher income clients that we have that are above 500,000 so let's call the 3.8% rate 4% so the top rate moves to 4% 24% excuse me uh also Remember that all these taxes are in addition to any state tax that may apply. So for a New Jersey resident to get a capital gain rate of 30% is easy. For a New York resident, 30% is easy. Uh, Florida would be 24, 24% uh, would be the tax rate. Again, I, I, it's worth emphasizing that these are the rates that apply when you sell. And selling is always a voluntary choice. Yeah, I think it's also important to note that in terms of capital gains rate, the highest someone could pay is roughly 24%. And what is the highest rate in terms of ordinary income? 38%? Well, it'll for our clients, let's round and call it 40%. 40%. So it's a big difference. It's a big difference. It's meaningful. Yes. It's significant. It's worth planning to pay as much in long-term capital gain. Uh, If you have to pay the tax, that's preferable. We'll be right back after this. So as tax-efficient investors for our clients, how do we mitigate their overall tax taxes? Well, first of all, I think you used the right word when you said mitigate, uh, because you can't avoid them completely. Uh, furthermore, you, you have clients who, for whatever reason, they have decided that it's time to sell the business. It's time to sell the piece of real estate. Maybe they need the money for whatever reason, because they want to buy a second house, they want to help the kids out. So it's time to sell a position. So the taxes have to be paid. How can we mitigate these taxes? Uh, There's a couple of strategies that can be utilized to minimize or postpone taxation. Uh, One of the largest areas, and frankly is beyond the scope of today's 
podcast is the whole world of qualified plans, IRAs, Roth IRAs. We're going to skip that today. We're going to have another podcast on on those subjects. But and the, and the reason those work is that contributions to those plans are income tax deductible. Growth of the money inside the plan is tax deferred when the money comes out of the plan. And we'll talk about Roths eventually. When money comes out of the plan, it's taxed. Those are qualified plans. For our clients' personal investments, there are strategies that they can use to mitigate their taxation. One is not selling, but we just already talked about circumstances where the clients need the money, want the money, have decided that it's time to sell for whatever business reason they have. One of the strategies we use is that we attempt to harvest capital losses for our clients. Markets, and I'm talking about the equity markets more so here, Tyler, they fluctuate in value all the time. Typically, there's a 15% drop from peak to trough in the course of a year. During those downturns, it may be that there is positions in a client's portfolio that move to losses. Uh, You can sell those losses, realize the capital gains. Now, we'll talk about the rules on how to make this work. But you can realize the capital loss by something else. That something else must be uh, similar in the sense that you want to maintain your economic position, but different enough that the IRS will treat it as an actual sale. They've got a concept called wash sales that you have to watch out for. We do watch out for that. But the idea is that you can harvest these losses and use those losses to offset other capital gains over time. Uh, there are It's a lot of work for a manager, but there are managers who do this as on a regular basis. They harvest losses. We do it here. Uh, on a, whenever it's, we get a good opportunity to do so. And the idea is that as you harvest these capital losses, you can then offset them against capital gain in the future. Jim, I know you mentioned wassail rules. Can you elaborate on what the IRS deems as a wash sale? The economic concept behind what the IRS is doing is accurate. Uh, If you own Coca-Cola stock and it goes down in value from $100 to $80 and you sell it at $100 and then instantly buy Coca-Cola stock at $80, the IRS has said your economic position has not changed and therefore we're not going to let you take a $20 long-term capital loss. I don't know if it's long-term or short-term, but they're not going to let you take a $20 capital loss to offset other the capital gains that you might have. So what the investor must do is they must wait for at least 31 days to buy back their Coca-Cola stock. IRS says if you do that, then you have waited long enough and your economic position is changed enough that we'll let you honor, take your $20 capital loss, even though we know you bought the stock back in 30 days. Now, the risk to the investor is that Coca-Cola might go up in value during that 31-day period. An investor 
might, to address this problem, and this is what we do, would buy something that is similar to, but not significantly identical to, the the original Coca-Cola position. So the investor might buy Pepsi. You can think of a lot of other investments that would be similar to, but not substantially identical. And so your economic position is similar, but different enough that the IRS would let you take the long-term loss. And this is the kind of strategy that we utilize, that managers that we work with utilize. And the idea is that the client maintains their economic exposure to the markets and yet is makes a, an investment that is different enough that the long-term capital loss can be realized. And this can be done over time. It's technical. It's something that has to be watched uh, so that you don't violate the wash sale rules. It is difficult. It's also an area where the, the IRS guidance is not clear. And, and, and frankly, to defend the IRS, it, maybe it shouldn't be clear. You know, if you, if you sell Coke and buy Pepsi, you have made a different economic choice. Certainly, the, the folks who work at Coke and Pepsi would say they're both different. <laughs> so you have, made a, you have made a choice, and the IRS uh, allows you to, to recognize that they're different, and you can take a loss on your position one, yet you have something similar in your replacement investment. Uh, this kind of thinking applies to uh, ETFs. It applies to other kinds of securities. It applies to real estate uh, with this concept that you, you can uh, buy something that is similar, but it's not the same. Clients should also keep in the back of their mind that, and this is, this is important for older investors, uh, that should you die, should you leave this earth, owning an asset that has a built-in capital gain. You paid $10 for it, it's worth $50, and you, you die. Your estate receives that asset with a basis of 50 so that your family, your spouse, will not have to pay capital gain tax on that asset for the gain during your lifetime. If we put these two concepts together, we can harvest tax losses for our client while they're living which reduces the cost basis in their existing portfolio. And then when they eventually leave this earth, there's a step up in basis and the family won't have to pay any tax on, won't have to pay any capital gain tax on these assets for real estate assets, which typically have much longer holding periods than your typical security. this becomes the standard procedure for many of the real estate clients. Jim, when using the tax loss harvesting strategy, what type of clients benefit from using this? Tyler, we have found that the larger and more sophisticated a client is, the more important that these strategies become. Uh, First of all, it's essential that you get the client's CPA on board early and aware of how these programs are going to be utilized and how they work and to get their input into how important a particular strategy is for a client. So the CPA has got to be involved. Uh, Secondly, uh, when a client is making a large decision regarding selling their business, uh, selling a piece of real estate that might house the business, 
one of the things they can do is they can get ready for the capital gain that that will be caused by those sales by, and this this is important that you understand that we're talking about their personal portfolio. This is not the retirement plan. This is not the 401k plan. This is in their personal portfolio that you can start accumulating tax losses in anticipation of the sale of the family business, the sale of the business they've created, which undoubtedly will create a general capital gain tax. If you're able to generate some capital losses before then, in the years leading up, you're able to offset it when you have offset the capital gain on the sale of the business or the sale of the big piece of real estate with accumulated capital losses in the past. Meanwhile, by the way, you don't invest for the purpose of generating capital losses. Uh, You're trying to make money there. So what you really have done is reduce the basis in your portfolio, and you're hoping to get good returns with the portfolio. I mean, that is that is the point. <laughs> yeah, after it's, all, it's uh, interesting how when you know when you see capital gains, it actually means that we're doing a good job. Yes, that's that is the goal, and yet it doesn't always happen. Markets fluctuate. If you can take advantage and realize capital losses, you lower the basis of your portfolio. You can accumulate some capital losses for future use. uh, And this becomes very useful for our largest and most sophisticated clients. Uh, You can move these concepts along and help the family somewhat by gifting assets that are higher basis to family members, keeping in the older generation assets with a lower basis because of the step up in basis at death. So you can start working this into overall family planning. And it's a sophisticated enough issue that it it can be a good issue to start teaching your children about. because so they understand the overall estate plan that the client has put in place and how it integrates with current investment and capital gain taxation planning. I know you mentioned gifting there. I think there's another thing that could be added into that category as well, and that would be charitable contributions. There could be a strategy. Many of our clients are charitably inclined. A strategy for a client who wants to make a significant gift to one charity, many charities, is that they can gift an asset. You can gift an asset that went up in value, that has a capital gain in it. So the value is the value of the stock or the position that you're transferring to the charity. Charity then sells it for whatever the value is. The client gets a deduction for the full value. The client does not pay the capital gain tax that they would have paid had they sold it themselves and then gifted the proceeds. By the way, there's also a nice feature in uh, IRA planning, which we're not going to talk about today, but there's a nice ability to to, uh, make a charitable contribution out of an IRA subject to an annual limitation of $100,000. But $100,000 a year. Uh, is a nice number. 
to so we'll put that aside. In the capital gain world, you can make a charitable gift of an asset and avoid the capital gain tax. This is another subject that is an excellent opportunity to get your family involved in so they know not only what charities you think are important, but that you think charitable contributing is important and that you're going to do it in the most tax-sophisticated way. And it would be useful for your children to see how charitable intent, tax planning, and investment planning all go together. Now that we've covered capital gain, capital losses, and how to actually implement the tax loss harvesting strategy, when you own certain investments, real estate or stocks, they do generate some income before you sell. How is that taxed? Every one of our clients owns a money market fund or a bank account. Many of them own bonds. Anything that generates interest, interest income is subject to ordinary income taxes. There's one major exception for municipal bond income, which is not taxed. And we won't, we're not going to discuss that today. But bonds generate ordinary income tax. Money market funds generate ordinary income tax. Dividends from stocks and rents from real estate ownership are subject to favorable rates, lower rates than ordinary income tax. These are, these are seen as different types of investments, and the Internal Revenue Code treats them and taxes them at a lower rate. Again, I'm talking about federal rates, which typically are in the 20% area for qualified dividends. State taxes are on top of that. So corporations pay taxes, the dividends come out, the individual investor pays taxes. When there is a capital gain, the capital gain is subject to capital gain tax rates. All of those are areas to be managed. The favorable taxation tends to be on capital, whether it's capital gains or dividends or real estate ownership. What is the difference between qualified and non-qualified dividends? Well, the simple answer is that you get a 1099 at the end of the year and they're at the two different kinds of dividends are told you were told what they are from the financial institution basically what they're going to do is is if the corporation paid taxes on the money at the corporate level if it was subject to taxation they don't always have to pay taxes subject to taxation and they declare a dividend that's a qualified dividend uh, there are some corporate entities that by their nature, they are pass-through entities, master limited partnerships, that sort of thing, that do not pay taxes according to the tax code at the corporate level. They pass out a dividend, and that dividend will be ordinary income taxed because it was never taxed at the corporate rate. That is a non-qualified dividend. It gets more complicated than that, and that's why your CPA has to be involved in these conversations from the beginning. Everything we've just dis discussed is subject to current law. Tax laws change all the time. Guidance from the IRS changes regularly, but th this, this is what the rules are today. Clients can mitigate their taxes. They can address their taxes with some planning. They can use the whole subject of taxation as an area where they can work with family members. We're, we'll discuss qualified plans, IRAs, 401ks in another 
podcast. So thank you for listening. Uh, We appreciate it. Uh, Please follow us and like us and subscribe. And subscribe. Bonin Co. Securities, Inc. Disclaimer. It should not be assumed that your account holdings will correspond directly to any comparative indexes or any of our existing client accounts. Investment in foreign securities have additional risks, including the risk of adverse currency fluctuations. Please remember that different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk, and current and future results may be higher or lower than those shown. Figures shown are past results and are not predictive of results in future periods. Share prices and returns will vary, so investors may lose money. Investing for short periods of time make losses more likely. It should not be assumed that recommendations made in the future will be profitable or will equal past performance. For the Vaughn Dividend Growth Program, performance is based on accounts that was managed for the longest period of time, and results are illustrated from inception. All income, dividends, interest, and other earnings are reinvested. Performance-based fees can only be utilized by individuals who meet the following qualifications. A natural person who or a company that immediately after entering into the contract has at least $1 million under management of the investment advisor or a natural person who or a company that the investment advisor entering into the contract and any person acting on his behalf reasonably believes immediately prior to entering into the contract has a net worth together in the case of a natural person with the assets held jointly with a spouse of more than $2.1 million at the time the contract is entered into. For the Vaughn Equity Asset Allocation Program, performance is based on an account that was among the earliest to use the program. Vaughn & Co. Securities Inc. believes that these results are representative. All income, dividends, interest, and other earnings are reinvested. There may be economic or market conditions that affect performance. Bond & Co. Securities Inc. buys concentrated positions for our portfolios, which may make our performance more volatile than that of broad market indexes, and our performance may diverge from an index, positively or negatively, as a result. Investments are not FDIC-insured, nor are the deposits of or guaranteed by a bank or other entity. Bond Asset Allocation Program and Bond Dividend Growth Accounts results are net of all fees, reflecting trading commissions, maintenance, custody, advisory, and performance fees, if any. It should not be assumed that the recommendation made in the future will be profitable or will equal past performance. Data and information contained in any chart used by Vaughn & Co. Securities, Inc. has been supplied by sources we believe to be reliable, but is not guaranteed. Accounts held at Fidelity Investments are covered by SIPIC.